The Nick Abbott Habit. There's been an enormous amount in the news these past two weeks, but no one was paying any attention because they were too busy cancelling their flight reservations on United Airlines. You must have seen those pictures of a passenger enjoying the best that the United Airlines customer liaison department could offer by being dragged off the plane and smashed about the face for not giving up his seat. He got concussion, a broken nose and two lost front teeth. And it would have been bad enough if he was sitting in the wrong seat or he'd boarded the plane illegally. Or he'd opened his packet of complimentary peanuts while the no eating the peanuts sign was lit, but they dragged him off the plane screaming because they wanted to give the seat to one of their own staff. I mean, that's just hilarious. Unless you happen to be the man in question, who is a doctor, and now knows some very good lawyers who've been having a multiple lawsuit gasm just thinking about all those zeros that they're going to get on that check. You know, in the olden days, let's say 10 years ago, No one would have filmed that man being hauled off the plane like a sack of potatoes. But since the invention of the iPhone, and yes, that was only ten years ago, everybody in the whole world has become a journalist. We photograph and video everything now, so that if any terrorist outrage occurs or a traffic accident happens or a pussycat decides to attack its own reflection in a mirror, everybody gets to see it. Before the smartphone, only the people that were there would have seen those things and they wouldn't have recorded them. So they would have had to use their memories to relate those incidents to other people who would not have been interested because you really had to be there. Well, now we can all be there, everywhere, all the time. And that's becoming a problem for giant corporations and governments because where once they could just sweep stuff under the carpet, now, when a hundred million people see you screw up, you have to go on a worldwide apology tour that would tire out the Rolling Stones. But what followed the video of that man enjoying the attention of those United Airlines hospitality representatives was like a how-not-to guide for distressed management public relations. They'll be teaching this in PR school for years. You'd have to be some sort of inverse genius to come up with a worse way to handle the crisis that followed that little local incident. Here's how they should have done it. They should have flown that man first class for a personal festival of apology attended by all the biggest wigs from the airline and they should have bust in his favourite supermodels to give him a personal lap dance of atonement. They should have buried him up to his eyebrows in chocolates and flowers and brought in Japanese bowing specialists to follow him wherever he went for the rest of his life. That's what they should have done. What United Airlines actually did was go on the attack. What's aviation industry jargon for stupid freaking morons? The top man at United actually went out to defend what they did. He's not very smart. Never mind about being the president of the United Airlines, he's almost not smart enough to be the president of the United States of America. He claimed it was all the good doctor's fault for not leaping out of the seat that he paid for and exiting the plane to stand in departures, where he would get to eat a curled-up sandwich till the next flight came along, to allow a United Airlines space waitress to take his seat. You know the man they dragged off actually said, just kill me, (laughs) as they were taking him off the plane? That's how bad it is in United Airlines departure lounges. The CEO of the company, meanwhile, said that dragging that man off the flight was their standard procedure. And the whole world checked their holiday reservations to see whether they had accidentally booked a flight on the airline that assaults its customers who don't do as they're told. You know, the Syrian President Bashar al-Assad actually called up to see if he could recruit some of United's staff. He said they were just the sort of people he was looking for. And the financial markets saw how the CEO handled the situation and their stocks soared. Just kidding, their stocks tanked. 
They lost about $800 million in the value of their company from one YouTube video. And that's not even counting the settlement that they'll have to pay this man, which will probably easily be $10 million. We'll never know, because they'll settle out of court. Because now they've employed some public relations special ops team who've abseiled down the United Airlines building and smashed through the windows in the management suites and put a bag over the CEO's head and locked him in the cupboard in case he says anything else stupid. They'll want all this to just blow over and the public to forget it ever happened. So they'll write that man a cheque so big he'll need help to pick it up. But when one bad story like that happens, you tend to get a lot more trailing in its wake. And the last time I looked, the airline was looking at two more lawsuits from the land that invented the phrase compensation for emotional distress. There was a nice lady from Texas who was flying from Houston to Bogota with her husband. Now, the key point about this is that they were going through a divorce at the time and did not appear to have much love for each other. And during the flight, she rested her head on her husband's shoulder to catch some sleep. And her husband called the flight attendant to say that she was invading his space. Yeah, I know. People, eh? So while the attendant was coming over, the man hits his wife. And according to her, instead of protecting her from him, the flight attendant joined in the attack. Because, you know, that's standard airline procedure. The case was filed last year, but it's now at the top of American news reports because of the doctor dragging thing. And then there's the story about the couple travelling to their own wedding. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you're not going to spoil their big day, are you, United? Well, rules are rules. And the airline kicked them off the flight they were taking because someone was sleeping in their seats. This is their take on the story. They said that a passenger was asleep sprawled across three seats, two of which were theirs. So the flight crew showed them to other vacant seats, at which point the steward called the police and had them taken off the flight for not sitting in their assigned spaces. Now, that's just their side, and I don't know if they're suing or not, but it doesn't really matter. Stuff like this is going to come out on a daily basis. Things that people would put up with on other flights are now going to become international incidents if they happen on United. Their advertising slogan, by the way, used to be connecting people, uniting the world. Now it's concussing people, frightening the world. You know, if they'd just done what I said about the chocolates and the flowers and the supermodels and the apologising, it would have cost them a million dollars tops. And the CEO would have cashed in a bonus for excellence in being him. But now this will cost them a billion dollars. And the CEO will probably want to buy himself a pair of gardening gloves because I would expect him to have a lot of time on his hands. In other travel news this week, the government is going to make it easier for morons to pass their driving test. I think this is their big idea to save the NHS money by killing us all. It's the biggest shake-up of the driving test for nearly 20 years to take into account the increasing stupidity of the human race. From the end of this year, learner drivers will be able to use the parking sensors on new cars to help them pass the test. Well, I could go one better. Why don't they just let someone else sit the test for them? If they've got Lewis Hamilton to sit everyone's test, we'll all pass really quickly. But that's not all. From December, the government's dropping the expectation that new drivers should be able to reverse around a corner without mounting the curb. That's not going to be part of the test anymore. Because no one ever backs up these days. If you're in a Mexican standoff with two cars facing each other down a narrow road, 
Neither one will back up and let the other pass because of the well-known it's my right, I could do what I want rule. So no more silly reversing and no more three-point turns on the test either. So I wouldn't plan on standing next to any curbs from now on. And instead of parallel parking, where you drive up to a space and reverse into it, causing only minimal damage to the cars on either side, drivers will instead be expected to drive into and reverse out of a supermarket parking bay to ensure that the test is more like what they call real life. Well, if they want to make it like real life, they should park so close to the car next to them that the driver has to get into his through the boot. If they want to make it real to life, then how about testing them on their ability to eat their breakfast, shout at passers-by, and send a text message while speeding through a built-up area? And if they really want to make it real to life, they'll be stoned and receiving a sexual favour while they're doing it. You know that modern cars come with a whole orchestra of beeps and boops and gongs, and they say, warning, warning, to tell you that you're too close to the car in front, or you've gone to sleep, or your partner has orgasmed. Well, the Driver and Vehicle Standards Agency have dropped their standards so much that learner drivers are going to be able to use all of those things to make passing the test easier. Learners will be able to use all those sensors which beep to alert you that you're doing something wrong. They could just save a lot of time and give driver's licenses away inside Christmas crackers. That would be a joke and no one would be laughing. Just like a Christmas cracker. And it gets worse, because under the new test, learner drivers will be able to use sat-navs. Now, the problem with sat-navs is that we switch part of our brains off when we are using them. And I've met people, and believe me, most of them need all of their brains to be switched on just to be able to tie their own shoelaces. People need all of their brain power just to stop them soiling their underwear. But when we drive along just doing what the sat-nav tells us, first, we don't have any idea where we're going as opposed to reading a map which gives you an overview of your route. And second, sat-navs are dependent on the satellites put up by the US military, which seems to be trying to kill us. Sat-navs tell people to drive the wrong way up one-way streets. They tell you that the best route into town is to drive straight to Dover and off the cliff into the English Channel. They tell you to leave a perfectly good and empty motorway for no apparent reason to take a 20-mile detour round tiny B-roads with speed humps every six feet, only to rejoin the same empty motorway an hour later. That happened to me once, and it made me late for a funeral. I'm not making that up. I mean, it was OK, because he was still dead when I got there, but still. One of our transport ministers said... These changes will help reduce the number of people killed or injured on our roads and equip new drivers with the skills they need to use our roads safely. The president of the AA said these changes will test drivers in a more realistic manner, which is essential to improving their safety once their L-plates are removed. And while I admire their confidence, I don't think so. If learners don't have to reverse around a corner and they don't even have to reverse into a parking space and on the road just follow whatever the sat-nav tells them to do, that doesn't sound safer to me. It just sounds like they made it easier to pass, and that's all we need. How about they teach people how to act at a mini roundabout without causing a multiple pile-up? That would be a good idea. Or if men let someone in from a side road, it's not a threat to their masculinity. How about they teach learners not to tailgate and lean on their horn every time someone ahead does 20 in a 20 zone. Because that person will be me. Because I am the only person in the entire country that's daft enough to try going 20 in a 20 zone. But maybe all this will work out OK. Because pretty soon, no one will be able to afford a car. 
Are you like me and wondering how people can afford all those new cars on the road? But lately, I've been thinking I must be some kind of world-class loser because absolutely everyone on the road seems to be doing better than me. I keep looking at cars that zoom past with their taillights that look like a disco and their leather seats and their air conditioning, and I think, why am I driving a 20-year-old pile of junk that's only held together by tree sap and bird poop? Well, it turns out that everyone else is not earning a fortune that lets them afford a new car every three weeks. They're renting them from banks. It's the next subprime lending bubble that will take us all down like the last subprime lending bubble with mortgages. The amount of money being borrowed to buy new cars trebled over the past eight years to more than £30 billion. And those in the know are freaking out because the banks have been lending to anyone regardless of whether they can afford to pay the loans back or not. What could possibly go wrong? Well, the regulators have stepped in just after the nick of time. And now drivers will face tougher affordability checks to qualify for car loans. You know, it's almost as though the banks are ignoring the recent history with the financial crash which led us poor sods to bail them out, and they're doing the exact same thing again, lending to people who can't afford it in order to make money in the short term. Well, actually, that's exactly what they're doing. Motorists are being offered loans worth more than their own salaries, just like the subprime mortgage boom, which brought the whole house of cards crashing down 10 years ago, and for which we will be paying for the rest of our lives. And I've talked about this before. I wondered for the longest time how everybody on the road seems to have a better car than I do. Newer, shinier, more expensive. Some have even got CD players in them instead of the cassette player in the dash of my car. Oh, I can only dream of having one of them newfangled CD players in my car. I kept wondering, how is it that everybody is richer than me? Well, it turns out they're not. They're just giving in to their inner infant and demanding the latest, biggest, fastest, whitest, turbo-powered four-wheel drive commuter tank right now. And if they can't have it, they'll squeam and squeam and squeam till they're thick. And that demand for instant gratification is natural in a toddler, but in an adult, it's like a mental illness. It's like those people that go on holiday when they can't afford it and just load up the credit cards. Having a holiday is not a right. I don't go on holiday because I haven't got any money. I go to the park when it's nice or maybe Brighton for the day once a year. And it's amazing. Nine in ten new car sales are now financed by personal contract plans so that people on low incomes and poor credit histories can afford brand-new, top-of-the-range cars. And it's households with what they call stressed incomes that are the ones that are buying most cars. In other words, those that can afford it the least are spending the most. And unlike housing, they're borrowing money on an asset that's going down in value. As soon as you drive it out of the showroom, the value of your car drops like a hot brick. The loans they're paying off are worth more than the car they're borrowed on. The whole world's gone crazy. You know, if we all just lived within our means, we would actually be happier. I know that sounds like a recipe for unhappiness, but just think how nice it would be to live without the shadow of debt hanging over us. We would be happier. The banks, of course, would be very unhappy. But unlike the government, I'm not overly concerned with making bankers happy. How about you? And about that being happier, if we just live within our means, well, there's more to it than that. We would be happier if we spread the wealth around a bit. There's good news and bad news about that. The good news is that, according to a new report from the geniuses at Oxford Economics, 
British households are richer than ever. And you might be thinking, hallelujah, but before you start putting out the bunting and the union flags, there's a but. British households are richer than ever, but that won't translate to increased consumer spending, which is what makes the economy go round. And that's because those riches aren't shared out evenly among all of us. It's an average figure, which hides the fact that this wealth is tied up in the accounts of the haves and the have-mores. It's tied up in house prices, tied up in pension funds, and mostly it's tied up in the hands of a tiny number of people who got lucky and sit atop the greasy pole. At the end of 2016, British households' total earnings of properties and assets amounted to £9.2 trillion, up almost 8% on the year. But consumer spending did not grow at anything like that rate. And that's because the 8% increase wasn't spread out over all of us. In fact, Oxford Economics model suggests that a 10% rise in wealth boosts consumer spending by just 0.2%. And that's because if the money is in private pension funds, it's not being spent. And pension funds represent about half the wealth of the country, which won't come as any comfort to half of those people in the country who have no pension at all. And if the money's in housing, that's not being spent either. And again, it's the old that are the biggest winners. They bought houses when they were giving them away free with 10 gallons of petrol. And now they're worth a fortune. The young don't get to benefit from house price increases because they don't have houses. They rent. And the increase in young renters just increases the income of the property-owning class. You know, the average household wealth for those in the top 20% income distribution was £853,000. For households in the bottom 20%, it's just 23000 And what's happened is that despite this obvious disparity of wealth distribution, there's a further move of wealth from the poor and the young to the rich and the old. It's trickle-up economics, like Robin Hood in reverse. We've got a general election coming up, and I bet my 20-year-old car that the winning party won't be the one that suggests a redistribution of wealth. Which could happen by taxing the rich more and maybe taxing property. But that's because if you even suggest that, the newspapers will scream about socialism and the conservatives will bang on about the importance of rewarding the job creators, despite the fact that if money is tied up with the wealthy, they aren't spending as much as their wealth is increasing by. You can only buy so much stuff before you get tired of shopping. And the money just starts piling up in their accounts. So if the money we create as a country goes to the already rich, there aren't as many jobs being created as if it went to those who can't afford to go shopping in the first place. And what's bizarre is that the people in the lower income brackets go along with all that. Because they're either easily swayed or they don't know enough to make a reasoned judgment. Or they've never heard of Denmark. You know, the top line tax rate is about 56% in Denmark. In the UK, it's 45%. And guess which of those two countries has happier citizens? There's a thing called the World Happiness Report, which asks people in 53 countries how happy they are and measures things like GDP and life expectancy, generosity, social support, freedom and corruption. And for 2017, it lists the top 10 happiest countries as... Denmark, Switzerland, Iceland, Norway, Finland, Canada, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Australia and Sweden. Just as you'd expect. The top tens full of those perfect countries from lands where they're all smiley and six foot and blonde and they get to have a lot of Scandinavian sex with each other, damn it. 
And are those countries in the top ten on the happiness list? Only Switzerland and Canada pay less tax than we do. But they're happy because they're all mesmerised by cuckoo clocks and hopped up on maple syrup. We're the 23rd happiest country on the list, by the way, behind Israel and Mexico. You know, the places with the bombs coming in and the headless corpses by the side of the road. But if a politician says this, the countries that have a fairer distribution of wealth are full of happier people, that politician will be shot down in flames, asked to resign, refused to vote and ridiculed in the press. And the poor will go along with all that, despite the fact that it's those very same poor people that would benefit. It's like we've been trained to act against our own best interests. And by the way, the countries at the bottom of the happiness index, the least happy places on the list, are coincidentally the ones with the lowest taxes. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar and Bahrain have a 0% personal income tax rate. You'd think that would make them happy. But it doesn't. So I say that the route to happiness is sticking with the old car you've already got, not going on holidays, and paying more tax. Who's with me? An echoing silence. Till my next podcast comes out on the 7th of May, you will be delighted to learn that I have a selection of hilarious, totally tremendous books on the Kindle site on Amazon, the latest of which has a picture of me about to be eaten by a prehistoric monster fish on the front. And until I return to LBC this Friday and Saturday night at 10, I wish you good cheer... And I appreciate your attention. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!